Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hey, you guys, it's Anna David. You are listening to the podcast Recover Girl. I'm so glad you're listening. Let me welcome you to this show. If you're returning, freaking great. If you're new to the show, freaking also great. Uh, this is a podcast where I talk to people about addiction, recovery, and sharing their dark to find their light. I strongly believe we all have darkness and we all have stories to tell about it. Uh, it doesn't have to be about recovering from addiction to drugs and alcohol or anything else. It can be about recovering from illness, about uh, anxiety, toxic relationships. Take your pick. By the way, if you want to know, should I be telling my story? I mean, in books or articles or anything else, I have a quiz for you. Go to lighthustler.com slash quiz. Do not go there right now if you're driving. Do you hear me? But later, go to Light Hustler, L-I-G-H-T-H-U-S-T-L-E-R. Yes, I can spell the name of my own site, lighthustler.com slash quiz. Find out if you're one of the people who should be sharing your story. Speaking of that, this is such an exciting episode for me today. This is an interview like none other I have ever been able to do. It is with Austin Eubanks. Austin is a survivor of the Columbine shooting tragedy. He was shot twice. He watched his best friend be murdered right in front of him. And from there developed an addiction, unsurprisingly, and is now in recovery as COO of Foundry Treatment Center, speaks all over the world. Um, is one of the most articulate people I have ever had the pleasure of interviewing. And in this episode, you are going to learn how he has evidence that addiction can develop just from trauma, as in not from any genetic predisposition. He talks about what it was that got him to get sober, and he talks about what it's like to survive uh, the one secret to working through trauma. So this is one you don't want to miss. You are hearing this. It is the day after Christmas. If you are downloading it the day it's available, this really, uh, I'm not going to say, wow, this is so in the holiday spirit, but it it can put uh, some of our issues in perspective. Holidays is a time that can be challenging for a lot of us. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever heard that uh, Alcoholism is a threefold disease, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. So if for some reason holidays aren't turning out like you think they should, or Santa didn't bring you what you wanted emotionally, because we're all adults here, listen to this episode. Uh, It will make you realize what we as human beings are capable of surviving and 
that's really pretty much anything. So without further ado, I'm giving you Austin Eubanks. Hi, you guys. I am here. It's Anna David. I am here with Austin Eubanks to my left. I can't. I, anyway, <laughs> Hi. he's here. You see his face. Um, it says S.A. Banks, but it's Austin Eubanks. He's waving. And I'm so excited. This is obviously a completely different time than I ever do this. And that's because this is a very, very special guest. And this is my second Facebook Live this week. Um, it's a, an embarrassment of riches, you guys. So if you are new to seeing who the hell I am, I'm Anna David. I am a New York Times bestselling author of six books. I'm in long-term recovery. I have a company called Light Hustler where I help people share their dark to find their light. And there is no better example than my guest today. So Austin Eubanks is somebody that we have, we started emailing, I mean, only about six months ago, but I have been aware of who you are. I mean, I think since you came out about your recovery, which was about six years ago. Um, in short, if you don't know who he is, he's an injured survivor of the Columbine shooting who developed an addiction and has devoted his life, is in recovery, is in long-term recovery, and has devoted his life to helping those people who suffer from addiction as a result of trauma. He's the COO of the Foundry Treatment Center. He speaks all over the world to thousands and thousands of people about his recovery. And he's one of the greatest examples we have of a recovery advocate. So I'm so honored you're here. Thank you, Austin. Thanks. Yeah, you, you made me sound uh, a lot cooler than I am. So I appreciate that wonderful introduction. It's great to be here. Please. So let's walk it, walk it back. And I told you before we started that I'm actually self-conscious asking you about Columbine because it just feels so cliched and because I know You've been asked about it so many times, but um, pretend you haven't ever been asked about it before. And can you describe the experience for us? Yeah. So um, I was 17 years old uh, and I had enrolled in Columbine in my freshman year as an out of district student. Um, and uh, I was in the library meeting my best friend in order to prepare to go to lunch uh, when the shooting started. Um, and uh, the, really the hardest part of, about the shooting for me was losing my best friend. So uh, we were huddled together under the same table in the library. Um, I was uh, shot twice uh, and he was murdered right in front of me. So as you can imagine, life uh, took a, a hard left turn for me after that day. Um, up until that point at age 17, I had never smoked weed. Uh, I had never drank a beer. It just wasn't something that was prevalent in my family or my friend group. Um, and almost immediately, I, I uh, started to take prescription drugs off-label in order to soothe the emotional pain. Um, and that led to a pretty debilitating addiction, as addiction always does. My tolerance continued to build over time. And then um, after multiple attempts at treatment, I finally found lasting recovery at age 29. So, so when that happened, you were in the library. You felt, um, where were you shot? In your leg? My right hand and my left knee. And and you had no idea what was happening, or did you? Well, you know, it's that's a a, a great question. Um, there's two places in life that you're always told you're safe, and that's home and school. Um, and I still remember Corey was the first person who was sitting at our table who said that sounds like gunshots. 
And we all just immediately dismissed it as, well, it might sound like that, but it's not. We're at school. So why it wouldn't be gunshots. It's probably construction or we wrote it off to, you know, a million other things that it could be. Um, and it was about five minutes after he said that, that a teacher ran through the, the same doors we had just walked through into the library and yelled for everybody to get under the tables uh, that somebody had a gun. Um, and there's actually a 911 audio recording of that uh of, of that teacher making a call from the library um, that's online that, that I've, I've used in a number of settings when I talk about the way that uh, trauma can impact people and the way it has ripple effects and, and, and can lead to addiction. So, so you got out of there. How quickly afterwards did you get those pills and how did you get the pills? So um, I left the library um, about uh, just a few minutes after uh, Corey was murdered um, and uh, everybody started to get up uh, to kind of scramble out the back doors because the perpetrators had left. And um, I, I went out the back doors. Uh, I was taken from that area to a triage area to get medical attention. Um, and I remember the, the, one of the most vivid memories that I have is, is my, my father jumping over a fence to be able to get to me. Um, and I remember that was the first time I had this just emotional catharsis. Like I, I just went limp in his arms and I started, you know, screaming and crying and, and rightfully so. I mean, that, that was the first step of, of the stages of grief that I should have been in. And it was about 30 minutes after that experience uh, that I was heavily medicated on a variety of, of medications that were intended to sedate and to relieve pain. Um, and I had no knowledge of, of what the medications were even supposed to do. Uh, all I knew, not having any awareness of addiction or, or how those drugs were going to affect my brain chemistry or how they were going to improve the symptoms of trauma and emotional pain, um, I started taking them because they made me feel better. And all I knew at that time was that a lot of highly educated people had prescribed me medications that were supposed to make me feel better and they were working. And so um, I remember it was it was like every time I would I would take them, uh, there would be like a warm blanket put over me. And so all of the senses and everything I was experiencing was just more dull. It wasn't as sharp. Uh, and I was drawn to that almost immediately. Uh, and it was just a matter of weeks before I started taking them off label um, and then, you know, what started with prescriptions turned to alcohol, marijuana, illicit narcotics. Um, I spiraled very, very quickly. What were those pills, those initial ones? So initially I was uh, prescribed uh, opiates, um, which was initially a 7.5 milligram hydrocodone. But when I left the hospital that day, I had a 30 day supply. So in retrospect, I probably could have done with five to seven days uh, and then gone to a non-narcotic. Um, I left with a 30-day supply. I went back to a checkup with my primary care physician just three or four days later, and I got another 30-day prescription. Um, I also had a prescription uh, for sleep that was a benzo. Um, and then it, it's important, too, I regress the timeline just a bit because about eight months before Columbine happened, I had developed this affinity for getting dropped off at school. And I would walk through the school and grab my golf clubs out the back door to the golf course instead of attending class. <laughs> and so um, naturally, my grades started to slip. And in 1999, when your grades started to slip, that could only mean one thing. You had ADD. And right. so I went to the doctor. I got an ADD diagnosis because they're like, oh, yeah, he's not interested in school. He would rather play golf. That's definitely ADD. Uh, and they gave me a 90-day supply of 10-milligram Ritalin. Wow. And they said, here, take, take one a day, another half in the afternoon if you need to. And I remember that was the first mind-altering substance that I ever ingested. Um, but I didn't like the way it made me feel. I remember I would take them very sporadically. It would make my hands feel weird. I, my mouth was dry. I couldn't eat. 
Um, but the reason why I bring that up is after Columbine, I had a prescription for uh, an opiate, a benzodiazepine and a stimulant. And I learned very quickly with the combination of those three drugs that I could turn myself into a robot. I never had to feel anything. Um, and I was drawn to that because I, I, I held on to this false core belief that because this profound tragedy happened to me, that I needed those medications in order to be successful. Um, and it took me a long time to start to break down that, that core belief. Not to mention every, every doctor would pull out a prescription pad for this kid who survived the biggest tragedy in the world. I mean, you had a free pass for the rest of your life if you wanted to get doctors to keep giving you drugs. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a great point. And I, I always make a make a point to I work a lot with doctors and dentists and, and prescribers today or around this this education. And I always make a point to say that I don't believe that anybody who ever treated me had malicious intent. I, I don't think that that they were saying, oh, look, we're just going to give this guy, you know, a ton of meds to get him addicted and it's going to ruin his life. It'll be great. Um, they were doing what they were trained to do. They were trained to diagnose, prescribe, diagnose and prescribe. Um, and now we know different and, and, and we're starting to turn the tide on, on the way people are approaching that. But one of the, the biggest um, issues that I had immediately after is there was no collaboration between the clinicians I was working with on mental health and the prescribers that were prescribing medications um, for the physical symptoms. There was there was no collaboration at all. And so that's something that I'm a big, big champion for is I think that uh, historically we've had just a, a huge lack of collaboration between physical health and mental health. Um, and so I'm, I'm really proud of some of the projects that, that I'm getting to work on today in regards to helping develop prescribing collaboratives where people are coming together and saying, look, if we need to prescribe over seven days of opiates, it's going to require a behavioral health evaluation. Right. And that's not intended to prevent somebody from getting the medications they need to improve their quality of life. It's intended to give them an education about, hey, look, maybe you broke your leg skiing, but what if you got divorced three weeks ago? Like these are going to make you feel a lot better in more than just your broken leg. And that education is so, so important to help steer our society forward. So important, especially today, because so many of the kids that are adults, too, that are on heroin, be, you know, were prescribed opiates by doctors trying to help them. And they're you know, we don't tend to live in a society where people are talking about their feelings. I mean, more and more we do, but um, people are chiming in and I'm so grateful. You know, I wanted to put Darlene's comment up here because she says they make money that way, getting someone hooked. Now, my feeling is that like what you were saying, Austin, 96% of doctors have their hearts in the right places, but I fully, I know because I've experienced the 4% that do not. Um, I had a psychiatrist before I got sober who, um, knew I was a drug addict, who knew that I was lying to get Ambien from him, and who basically gave me enough Ambien to go kill myself and said, I can't treat you anymore, and I think you know why. Never said rehab, never said addict. Um, there, and, and this guy is a considered a great addiction expert out there, mm -hmm. you know, making a name for himself. So sometimes it's ignorance, sometimes it's malice, but most of the time I believe it's ignorance. Do you? So, yeah, I, I think that it's a, a systems problem more than anything. So I, I would agree with your assessment that by and large, the, the majority of prescribers that we have in society have the best of intent. They didn't go to medical school to harm people, the, the vast majority of them. However, we have a system that is driven by money. 
Uh, and that system, by and large, is, is driven by big pharma. And so if you look at where, where, how we got to where we're at today, 1996 was the implementation of pain as a fifth vital sign, where everybody who went into an emergency room, it was treated as a vital sign. What, what is your pain on the pain scale? And the goal at that time was that everybody's pain needed to be zero, an absolute zero. And part of the reason for that was that uh, patient satisfaction surveys were put in place and compensation for physicians and hospitals were based upon scores on those patient satisfaction surveys. So if they weren't scoring appropriately because their pain was a zero, their compensation was affected. So that was the goal. And coincidentally or not, at that, on that same year, that's when Oxycontin came on the market. And Oxycontin's aggressive marketing campaign is being effective for long-term management of chronic pain, non-addictive is, is what they were touting it at as first. And their marketers targeted what, what they were finding to be historic over-prescribers of opioids because they knew that those were going to be the people who prescribed the greatest amount of Oxycontin. Well, naturally, those people tended to be those who were less discerning about what they were prescribing. And so it, 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 the problem spiraled out of control very, very quickly. And then eventually when they started to reel it back, that's when everybody turned to heroin. So I think that the problem by and large is that these physicians were just falling in line behind what the prescribing practices were. It wasn't malicious. They were just doing what they were told. Um, that's so interesting. I didn't know a lot of that. Another thing that I think, you know, pain is a very bizarre thing because it's the perspective of the person in pain. What I call pain may not be what you call pain. And as Americans, as human beings, we want to go in somewhere and have a solution. So leaving with a prescription is a solution as opposed to some sort of nebulous conversation about, I don't know, my pain is at a level four. So I think there's something inherently, and I don't know if it's American or human, that just wants to feel, it feels like a waste to just go in, see a doctor and not come out with any specific diagnosis, but diagnosing pain is extremely complicated and vague. No, that's, I mean, you're absolutely correct. And I always wanna be sure that um, the work that I do isn't intended to lessen somebody's quality of, quality of life because what we had happen was there was a huge population of chronic pain sufferers who were sold this lie and they were put on enormous doses of opiate medication. Well, because they've been on that for so long, they're, they're not going to be able to go back to a different solution because their, their brain and their body is physiologically different than it was because they've been on opiates for so long. So they don't have the natural ability to reduce pain that many of us do. And so those people are being hurt along the way with with this process. And so um, the only reason that I bring that up is that I, I think that it's it's really important that we bring that into the conversation around what this looks like and really promoting alternative methods of pain relief from the very, very beginning, because had a, a large portion of those people been given an option initially, they wouldn't be where they were at today. And, and I do think that we're looking at what is an American problem. I mean, we make up just over 4.5% of the world's population and we're consuming over 80% of the world's total supply of opiates. We're consuming over 99% of the world's total supply of hydrocodone. So we, we are a society that wants to numb. And when I talk about addiction, I oftentimes don't make it specific to opiates. That was my drug of choice, but we see addiction on the rise across the board. Our society is just looking to medicate. So we have 50% more people today that meet criteria for alcoholism than we did in 2001. Methamphetamine is on the rise in many states at a greater rate than opiates. Um, and over 50% of teens who have a cell phone now meet criteria for cell phone addiction, where they actually have a visceral reaction and their stress 
levels spike if it's taken from them. And so it's been proven that that addiction can lead to negative outcomes in a number of areas, including increased likelihood of substance abuse. So when I talk about this, I talk about what is an addiction pandemic that is specific to our society. And we are just looking to numb. And um, I haven't even gotten started on pornography yet. So that's a whole nother issue. (laughs) Good. Um, This is fantastic. And Joe Schrank, I have this comment up here, but Americans think they're entitled to a pain-free existence. Life hurts. Get with it. Sometimes we feel how we feel and it doesn't always need correction. Um, Couldn't agree more. Couldn't subscribe to that more. If I'm ever remotely unhappy, I think there's something terribly wrong and I've got a lot to figure out as opposed to, oh yeah, this is the breadth of experience of feelings of being a human being. Um, I, I think addicts in general, you know, I think that we are people who, who think we're entitled to just feel good all the time and something's terribly wrong if we don't. Whereas many people just accept that, you know, it's sort of like peaks and valleys. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, and it, so my belief about addiction is sort of it's yes we're genetically predisposed but our circumstances in our formative years either sort of exacerbate or diminish that precondition are you somebody that believes addiction can just develop as a result of trauma with no genetic predisposition a hundred percent um and and case in point i'm sitting before you today as an example of that so i'm actually going to give an example that that um i was speaking at an event in phoenix uh this summer and a gentleman uh, waited afterwards to speak to me and there's usually a a few people who wait and and he waited until the very end and i could just see something was off about his energy he had a service animal with him and and a woman to his side uh and he waited until the end and he came up to me and he said i just want to let you know i was really moved i came to see you today the slot team that went into and, and we were the first into the library after the shooting and I got emotional and he got emotional and we hugged each other and I think and and he said you know I, I, I am now a person in long-term recovery and I just want to let you know that of the 16 people who, who went in um, to the library that day I'm only one of two that are still alive and 10 died by either overdose or suicide and that is the SWAT team. So those are people who are trained professionals carrying weapons that were actually never directly in the line of fire. They just walked into a library that was riddled with bodies of innocent students. And that trauma was so profound. Um, there's no way I would ever believe that all of those people just had a genetic predisposition for addiction. We were talking about professionals. They obviously weren't in active addiction at the time because they were working in the police force on a SWAT team. So I, I truly believe that that addiction is the catalyst for um, the vast majority of addictions and, and not only uh, just how we define trauma, but I also talk about emotional pain because oftentimes people hear trauma and they're like, I don't have trauma. I'm good. Well, when we talk about emotional pain, that can look in a number of different ways, and that is increasing the susceptibility of addiction. And I think that's a big problem in our society with the rise in the addiction pandemic and the rise in in mass shooting because the trauma and the emotional pain that ripples off of events like that, even with the story I just told, imagine the trauma that those families sustained for the people who overdosed or the people who committed suicide. Um, And and I think that's a huge problem in how we've gotten to where we're at today. Um, by the way, you were breaking up a little bit. If you guys are having any trouble hearing or seeing us, just let me know in the comments. I am going to read Joe. Some, some are made and some are born. Environment matters. There were many guys in Vietnam who were heroin addicts while in combat, and they gave it up after they were out of immediate life-threatening situations. Some were able to stop. This speaks to how little we empirically know about addiction. Um, agreed. Now, once... At what point did you realize your addiction was out of control or was it something your parents realized and shipped you off somewhere? 
so my parents realized very, very early on, um, you know, I had, uh, I have wonderful parents and, and they were, um, uh, you know, doing their best to help me. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of understanding about addiction either. And so um, they knew very early on that, that something was wrong and, and they were, that I had access to a, a bunch of help. The problem is, is all of the feedback from clinicians were he's just shut down. We can't reach him. He's going to have to engage in the stages of grief eventually. Um, you know, he's not responding to treatment right now. The feedback was never, let me talk to his primary care physician. Let me find out what medications he's taking, because it's pretty clear that he is numbing. Um, and so I, I very quickly did a 180. So I was tended to be a pretty compliant child, aside from my, uh, you know, skipping class to play golf. That was about the worst of it. Um, and I immediately fell into a friend group that supported the behaviors that I wanted to exhibit. So I, I went life in the fast lane. I would do whatever it took to not have to feel present because when I felt present, that would make me engage with the emotions that I didn't want to feel. And so very soon what started as prescription turned to alcohol, marijuana, illicit narcotics. My drug of choice was more. I just wanted more of anything and everything. And my senior year uh, as an injured survivor, I had the ability to get a private tutor who brought my schoolwork to my home and she came for two hours a day, three days a week. So my total accountability in my senior year was six hours a week. And that allowed me to continue to spiral in my addiction. I started to rebel from my parents, stay out all night, not coming home for days. Um, and very, very quickly, um, it was, it was, I was on a path that, that took a long time to recover from. Um, and then my first attempt at treatment was, uh, at the urging of my, my wife at the time, my employer and my parents. Uh, and that was in 2006. And I, I went for 30 days because I wanted to get people off my back. So I went for all the wrong reasons, but that was when I first got that spark of, you know, I'm not an addict, but these stories sound really familiar. Like the, the things that these people are saying sound really, really familiar. Um, and then the process continued from there. Did you stay sober after that one at all? No, went right back to what I was doing, continued to hit new rock bottoms. Um, and then in 2008, I went to treatment for 90 days. Um, and at that point I got eight months. And so I, I started to go through the process. I said, yes, I'm an addict. I get it. I understand. I'm ready. I'm bought into this. And because of the work that I was doing, all these things started to come back into my life. So I was estranged from my wife at the time and my young son. Uh, they came back into my life through, through the family process. We were able to reconcile our marriage. Um, I got my job back. All of these things started to come back into my life. And I'm like, oh my God, I've got this made. Life is wonderful. I can probably drink again. And so that thought process started to spiral. And I convinced myself that, you know what? I was a prescription addict. I never really had a big problem with drinking. It wasn't my thing. And I started drinking again. And I did that for about two weeks and my life didn't fall apart. And I said, see, look, I got it made. I got, I got this made. I live in Colorado. I can smoke weed. <laughs> and so it started to spiral. So I started smoking weed again. And then a few weeks later, somebody, I was inebriated. I was out. Somebody had a Xanax. I said, give me a Xanax. And while I was high on that Xanax, I called somebody who I knew had Oxycontin, which my was my drug of choice. So I was right back in that spiral. Um, and then from there, new rock bottoms, new rock bottoms. Finally, on April 2nd, 2011, I woke up in Denver City Jail with no recollection of how I got there. I was at Rocky's opening day, um, and I don't remember anything after 10 a.m. I was told later in the police report that I passed out at a restaurant. Uh, they called the paramedics. I had a warrant for a probation violation, which was my third on the same case. Um, and I remember waking up, and I called my parents, and they wouldn't take the call. I called my wife at the time. She wouldn't take the call. And I called everybody in my life who I called a friend at that time, and nobody would pick up. 
And I said, well, I'm on my own. I was 29 years old um, and I had no ability to manage my life. And so I remember looking up treatment center for people who treatment centers don't work for. Like, tell me how I'm going to figure this out. Um, I had very, very minimal resources at that time. I had extinguished all of my lifelines. Um, and fortunately, I, I found a place that could take me in at no out-of-pocket cost. Um, and I stayed in a continuum of care for 14 consecutive months. Uh, and that is really what it took to put me on the path that I'm on today is, is that continuum of care that allowed me to resolve that trauma at the strangest times. Like it would bubble up and I would go through this, this emotional catharsis that I should have been going through a decade before. But if I hadn't been in an environment of accountability and safety, I would have relapsed. No doubt about it in my mind. Um, and fortunately today, April 2nd, 2011 is still my sobriety date. Now, what would you tell people who can't go away for 14 months? What Do you have any sort of tips for dealing with trauma on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, the first part, and one of the things that, that uh, you know, I, I say in most of the work that I do is you have to find the courage to lean into the pain. And, and what I mean by that is sometimes you just have to sit in it. It's not going to be easy. And I think we get back to that idea of like, as Americans, like we want to just feel good all the time. Like, if, if I could be a zero on the pain scale, well, that's better than a three. I pick the zero. Um, sometimes you got to sit in the three and you got to sit in it for long enough to where you come out on the other side. And so a big part of, of the work that I do today is talking about the principles of post-traumatic growth and talking about how if you can find the courage to lean into the pain, you will come out the other side. It takes time and it is a process and you have to trust that process. But when you come out on the other side, post-traumatic growth states that you can actually have meaningful development of personal character. So you're never going to be who you were before the trauma, but you, you can actually be better. You can actually refine certain aspects of your life to be better. And that's very, very clear in, in my life and the work that I do today, because there's no way I'd be sitting before you right now if it wasn't for post-traumatic growth. Do and what about EMDR and these sort of have you done some of those sort of therapeutic trauma techniques? Absolutely. So now in my work today, I'm the COO of a Foundry Treatment Center in Steamboat Springs, and we are a trauma integrated long term continuum of care. Um, EMDR is a big part of our program. And so in, in, in looking at modalities that treat trauma, everything from from equine therapy. I mean, we're, we offer horticultural therapy and a, a wide spectrum of, of, of things that, that can work. What we find is that everybody adapts or everybody uh, attaches to something more than the other. And so really, when you're looking at treating addiction, having that kind of multimodality approach where you can make sure that you're giving people enough uh, attempts to be able to resolve what it is that they're dealing with, because there is not one size fits all for anything in regards to addiction treatment, specifically with trauma resolution. Um, and so I think that that is, that is super important um, in being able to, you know what, if, if you try five things and they don't work, try five more because you're going to find that thing. Um, I'm going to put Missy's comment up on the screen. Missy says, got addicted to pills due to having migraines since teen years. At 47, I found out I had an orange-sized brain tumor. I wasn't crazy about my headaches, but maybe the doctor should have tested my head before drugs. Been clean ever since re removal with the help of recovery. Six years now. Um, awesome. Congratulations. Um, what's interesting is I never even count this as part of my addiction because it was so separate, but I had a, I had a headache my 16th year of life the entire year um, and was sent to doctor after doctor, couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I was eventually sent to a neurologist who put me on Jarvisette, an, an opiate so intense that it's not even around anymore. Yeah. And I remember taking it and going, 
wow, I feel so good. Is that the absence of pain? Is that like, cause I didn't understand euphoria drug mm-hmm. and, and I built up such a huge tolerance so quickly that they just quickly had to put me on another one. But this also reminds me of this documentary I was watching last night, Heal. Have you heard of this? I have not. I've not seen that. Oh, you've got to. Uh, Tommy Rosen sent out an email about it and it, you buy it. It's $10 on iTunes. It is basically, and they interviewed Deepak Chopra and, and Marianne Williamson and all of these people. And it's all of these people who have everything from cancer to fibromyalgia to migraines to anything else and how it's so many of the principles of recovery that treat that help them heal um which isn't to say this is like woo woo shit like this is how you get rid of cancer but it was a lot about like community and changing your diet and doing all of these things anyway shout out i got nothing to do with this film austin you're (laughs) you guys watching missy joe you're gonna even joe even my cynical friend Joe is going to love it. I'm kidding. Um, now, we have to get close to wrapping up. Is there anything? Okay, so I do want to talk a little bit about your speaking. Do you you speak, uh, do you sort of travel year-round speaking? So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm involved in a number of projects right now. I'm, I'm traveling about 30% of the time, and I have to keep it at that because I'm, I'm um, obviously the work that I'm doing in Steamboat is, is first and foremost. And then uh, I'm on the board of directors for a new public recovery high school in Denver that I'm super excited about. We'll be opening in the second quarter of next year. Um, that'll be public, accessible to everybody with a, a curriculum that's focused on project-based learning, whole body wellness. We're going to start educating kids uh, about adverse childhood experiences so we can normalize those conversations conversations in adulthood. Um, and then I'm on the board of directors for the treatment center that saved my life, a 140-bed nonprofit called Stout Street Foundation in Denver, Colorado, uh, that can take people into services at no out-of-pocket cost, and they leave debt-free with a savings account. So pretty phenomenal work being do- done in that regard. And the remainder of my time is is speaking uh, and advocacy work, and um, I've been involved in, in the um, uh, Colorado Dental Association developing new prescribing practices uh, to to limit the the number of dead meds that are in people's medicine cabinets because a study that was recently done out of Pennsylvania indicated that over 50% of the dead meds were from old oral surgery. Uh, so dentists are really starting to look at the way that they're prescribing and um, and and trying to dial that in. Um, and then yeah, so I'm definitely passionate about the work that I get to do today on a number of levels and um, exciting stuff. So and. Let me ask you this. Do you are you in touch with anybody from Columbine? Do you hear from people, other survivors? Um, so not particularly. That's a great question. And it's one that I get often. So kind of after Columbine, that was really what defined all of our high school experience. And so for the longest time, I wouldn't even tell people I went to Columbine because it would just start the whole question dialogue. And I think a lot of people did that. Um, but really, everybody kind of scattered all over the country. However, we're at a, a point right now where because of um, the way that this trauma is affecting so many people as a result of these events of mass 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 shootings, mass violence, um, I, I think there's an enormous amount of value in getting those people back together. And so um, actually for the, the 20th anniversary of Columbine, A&E is working on a project. Um, it's a raw documentary series that'll be a, a multi-episode series where it's going to kind of get some of those people back together. And uh, it's a project I'm excited to be involved with. Well, Austin, I cannot thank you enough. Um, This has been just illuminating and fantastic. And um, this will be released, if you're watching this now, this will be released as one of my podcast episodes. My podcast is called Recover Girl. You can get it on iTunes and all that, all those places. And and that's it. Unless, do you have anything you want to add, Austin? 
No, I mean, thank you so much for having me today. We could probably continue this conversation for another three or four hours. So it was, uh, it was great. I think that we got thrilled quite a bit. Don't tempt me with that or I will keep you. for. <laughs> hey, there's always next week. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, see you guys next week. And thank you so much for watching. And thank you, Austin. Bye. Thank you.